Hello, welcome to Film is Lit. My name is Danny, the film expert. And this is Laura, the book expert. And this is a podcast where we compare a piece of literature to its movie or TV adaptation. That's right. Hell yeah. I nailed that intro. <laughs> you did. Awesome. All right. Well, that's it. Thanks for tuning in. Um, <laughs> now, uh, today on the podcast, we are reviewing the short story titled Story of Your Life by Ted Chang and its movie adaptation, 2016's Arrival, directed by Denis Villeneuve and written by Eric Heisier, or adapted by Eric Heisier. The whole point of this podcast, adapting. Yeah. Well, let's just get right into it. Laura's got a big old margarita right on the table. <laughs> I do. We're getting we're getting loose, loosey goosey. All right, we're just letting it all go out. Oh, oh, okay. Laura, mm-hmm. my love. Mm. It's safe to say that we both love the movie. The, the movie. Yes. Yeah, we watched this movie. A couple years ago, two years ago, mm-hmm. a year ago, Danny showed me this movie, and I didn't know it was a short story, unfortunately. So, this was an example of a time where I had to read the story after the fact, which I don't know if that tainted my experience of reading the short story, but I personally didn't like the short story as much as I really loved the movie. The first time we watched it, Number one, could not hold back the tears. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest. I was uncontrollably sobbing. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, yeah. But if it sticks out in my terrible memory, it most certainly sticks out in yours. Yeah. Because I was absolutely inconsolable. I could not handle... I don't think I, I, don't think I breathed for about five minutes after the show stopped. Yeah, it, it hits you hard. It's bookended by this... Really emotional. Uh, the same sequence scored by Max Richter's uh, On the Nature of Daylight, which we just talked about in Shutter Island. In Shutter Island, which is something that I learned. I didn't know that you could reuse a piece of score like you would reuse like an 80s song for a, what are they called? Soundtrack? I guess, but a montage. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, since Max Richter's On the Nature of Daylight doesn't belong to a movie, it's just a song. It's the same thing as just using any other that's song, true. right? Yeah, that's true. I uh, just never thought of it in that way. That sure. You could use instrumental yeah, pieces and over and over. It's not common to use instrumental pieces, but because that song was used, Johan Johansson's score, um, he did the score, mm-hmm. because he used that song um, both in the beginning and end of the film, his score was ineligible for the Oscars that year, the 2017 Oscars. Bummer. When he easily could have won, which we'll get to the score. We will. Um, yeah, but I'm going to try to not do the thing that people do on podcasts when they review their favorite films, which is just gush about it for two hours. I'm going to really try... I might do that. <laughs> right. I'm going to really try to explain why I think it's one of my favorite films of all time. I, it's definitely in my top ten. I don't know if it cracks the top five. But it's in the top ten for sure. I love this film. It is a film that perfectly encapsulates everything I want to do in the medium of film. I'm not just talking about in terms of plot. I'm talking about in terms of 
cinematography and tone, pacing, uh, writing, uh, you know, those two kind of go hand in hand, but pacing is also tied into the editing of the mm -hmm. film. There's not a scene too long or too short in this film. Every beat is exactly how long it needs to be and is executed perfectly, in my opinion, which I will try to explain well, later on. As Danny always likes to remind me, his opinion of the perfect movie length is two hours with credits. And this movie is an hour and 56 minutes Right, credits? correct, yeah. Look at me noticing these things. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and of course there are some exceptions, right? My favorite movie of all time, The Truman Show, is 98 minutes. But normally what I have noticed is I tend to like movies that are two hours exactly. I think it's just long enough to feel like a movie, like a momentous thing that I'm watching, um, but just short enough to hold my attention. Because let's be honest, it, it's hard to hold my attention these days, especially with all those TikToks um, <laughs> out there. I'm just all in Instagrams. I'm just, yeah. So two hours is normally what I tend to gravitate towards when I'm, I'm writing scripts. I tend to try to stick them to 120 pages to I you know I'm, I usually write stories similar to this which is these kind of meditative sci-fi epics mm, meditative um, is a really good word yeah I think well sci-fi is my favorite genre of film do you want to talk about your journey with arrival sure Might yeah get into that a little bit? yeah I'll say sci-fi is my favorite genre of film but I don't like it when because sci-fi is usually about some very human themes. That's the cool thing mm -hmm. about sci-fi. It's taking these very alien, sometimes literally alien subjects, topics, but it's really about humanity, and that's ever that's very present in Arrival. But sometimes that can be um, very cheesy, very heavy-handed, kind of pompous. Whereas Arrival is quiet. It's it kind of washes over you in waves, and and instead of the big kind of climactic finale it is climactic but it's over a phone call which is the whole finale of this film which is incredible how just a phone call it means literally the survival of uh, the planet earth and it's just this little act that can mean so much so yeah arrival is a special film to me but yeah i just had a long speech there L laura let's start with you then about your journey with arrival and then about uh, your journey with Ted Chang's story of your life. Yeah, so as I said, I didn't know about this movie at all until you showed it to me. And I didn't know, unfortunately, that it was a short story before I watched the movie. Otherwise, I would have immediately put on the brakes <laughs> to watch this movie before I had read the story. But I, I don't think it would have changed my opinion of liking the movie more than I liked the story, even if I had read it beforehand. I think that one of the reasons that I love this movie so much is that it deals with linguistics. <laughs> and right up your though, alley. Yeah, and even though sci-fi is not my favorite genre to read or enjoy in a film, immediately, as soon as it's introduced as a film about linguistics, which is really brave, by the way, because mm -hmm. I don't think a lot of people think it's very interesting. Like, it drew me in immediately. So I immediately connected with the main character, played by Amy Adams, who has the same name in the short story. Basically, if anybody asks me, what's your dream job? I say, 
Have you seen Arrival? <laughs> have you seen Call Me By Your Name? Because <laughs> those are the two movies that have my absolute favorite. Wait a second. You want to be in a gay romance with an alien? That's about it. Okay. So <laughs> I, I was wondering. So you don't check I any of those. Wondering boxes. how you connected those two movies. Well, no, because the dad is oh. sort of an archaeologist, but he's also sort of a linguist and researcher. Huh. Who so. has, who has a relationship with an alien? You've seen the <laughs> movie. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm pulling your leg. Okay. Uh, no. So, anyway, going back to the movie. So, number one, it's really brave to write a sci-fi movie about linguistics, and or maybe not totally about linguistics, but about you know the the story is really pushed along yep. by. The understanding of yeah, I would say it's about linguistics or more so communication, but yeah, communication. But linguistics, it's you know tied to communication. Exactly. So I, I yeah, I would say it's definitely about that. Yeah. So right off the bat, I think it's really brave. And after reading the short story, which was good, and I think has a lot of really good ideas, I just think in this instance, the movie elevates what was and sort of completes the ideas that were in the short story that maybe weren't completely fleshed out yeah i agree and you know who also agrees with you ted chang the author of the short really? story yeah he he came out and he said quote i think it's talking about the movie i think it's that rarest of the rare and that it's both a good movie and a good adaptation and when you consider the track record of adaptations of written sci-fi that's almost literally a miracle well, that's really interesting, and it also proves that I am the book expert. Yep. <laughs> I also love it. This is a personal thing, but I really love it when an author is humble enough to admit when he likes an adaptation of his work. And not or hers. Or, or hers, excuse me. Not necessarily admitting that their adaptation is better than their work, but just saying that it's good. Because that's something that, you know, with Stephen King... With him talking about not liking The Shining, it's like, are you serious? Like, are you seriously shitting on The Shining? I know it's very different from your own story, but are you more? Are you mad that they changed so much stuff? Or are you mad that that you didn't like an objectively great movie? <laughs> I well, mean, well, that gets it's in, it's an interesting conversation because it really gets to the kernel of what we what we like talking about on our podcast and just in general in life about how. You know, you start with a story, and I think the movies that we really end up appreciating either more than the original story or just as much as the original story is if the director or the writer can take what's there and add all of the things that you physically can't do with a book, like the visuals and the sound and the soundtrack, and oh, sound. elevate. Yeah what's already there and I agree if you're a writer and the movie really doesn't communicate what you wanted to communicate with your piece okay you can maybe come out and say you don't like it but I agree with the Shining example or with this example those two movies really do elevate what mm -hmm. was there originally so yeah. I agree even if you know even if a movie changes something as an author you at least have to realize well, it is good, even if it's different. Yeah, and sometimes 
elevating material doesn't necessarily mean that your material is bad or superior course, than right. the film. It's because it's that's the whole point of that an adaptation. It's something new entirely. Yeah, but I, I'm a big fan of uh, Ted Chang's writing and also kind of his attitude about this. He worked heavily with uh, screenwriter Eric Heiserer, who, you know, you said that it's pretty pretty insane that a movie, a sci-fi movie about linguistics was made. It seems so yeah. niche. <laughs> yeah, it is. And he, this had been almost a decade-long path for Eric Heiser. He wrote a spec script back in 2006 and spent years shopping it around and studios were like this is a great concept a great script this is super cool but something like this will never be made like mm -hmm. like exactly you said it's too niche no one's going to want to see this very sci-fi intellectual meditative movie they want Except you know, for maybe all the English professors. Right, except, but, but those don't pay the bills, right? The, uh, those <laughs> They're don't. not paid enough to go see the movies, right. is the issue. Exactly, yeah, and that's and that's where the podcast pivots. We're, we're telling everyone to pay your teachers more. Um, well, that is true. That but, is a message we'd like yeah, to send Yeah, we there. would like to send that message, but back to the movie. Yeah, everyone loved the script, and it, it just wasn't happening for Eric getting this movie made because no one wanted to put the money. It's a huge risk to do this with a side with with big budget movies in general that's why a lot of big action blockbusters seem dumb because you need to get the widest possible audience mm -hmm. possible but this one is very it's very slow but in a good way when i say slow i'm not i don't mean boring at no point is it boring but slow as in it just immerses you in it. It builds up the tension in the yeah. first half mm -hmm. and then spends the second half of the movie exploring how you develop a form of communication with another species that doesn't speak English, that doesn't speak the language you're speaking. They might as well, well be speaking to other humans, right? It, it's the same. The allegory is there. It's easy to understand that. But... I love how just the first half takes its sweet time. And Amy Adams's scene of Luis going to meet the aliens for the first time. It's mm -hmm. about a 20-minute long sequence. And it's one of the most breathtaking, tense, mm -hmm. beautiful, scary sequences I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. She Of the slow ride to the, the alien ship where she's kind of uncomfortable with her suit She's starting to really, she's heavy breathing. She's crying a bit. One of the details, just to interrupt a second, one of the details I love about that scene is when they take the camera into the suit and you hear her inhaling and exhaling and it's mm -hmm. super, super loud. Like when you go scuba diving or something and you know, you're in that sort of claustrophobic situation and you can, all you can hear is your breath. Mm -hmm. That's such a great way of showing how uncomfortable she is. Yeah. And the, as they go up with a scissor lift into it, into the ship, yes. and that's when you first, it's revealed that the gravity is different uh, midway up the ship where, where it turns um, oh, 90 degrees and they're essentially moment. walking straight up, up into the air. But to them, it's their level and the horns, the soundtrack is just blaring and then it's quiet. The aliens show up in front of this big white screen. It, it's breathtaking. And... Mm -hmm. Again, the sequence is so long. It's it's a, a fourth of the movie, but every moment is so perfectly filmed and um, edited. The editor 
Joe Walker. He's a frequent collaborator with Denis Villeneuve, and he also edited uh, last year's Widows, also a good, uh, fantastic movie. But I guess, I w see, I went right into praising it, but I forgot to say my own story relationship with the film. So, should well, I get into that? We can shuffle around. Yeah. That, or, yeah. yeah, do it now. Okay, cool. So, I had heard of Denis Villeneuve in my junior year of college. Sicario had just came out, and everyone was kind of pumped about that film. I ended up going to see that. That was the first Denis Villeneuve film I watched, and I was blown away by that. I saw I'm like, oh yeah, this guy knows what he's doing. Sicario, also one of my favorites. Um, it, it's in my top 20, I think, not my top 10. But as soon as I saw Sicario, I'm like, I need to check out this whole guy's filmography. He had made Prisoners back in 2012, which I hadn't seen with Hugh Jackman, Jake Gyllenhaal. Watched that incredible mm -hmm. movie, that too. Good. And I was after I saw Prisoners, after seeing Sicario, I'm like, okay, this guy is has now broke into favorite director realm. Status. After, after two movies, I'm like, oh, he's, he's someone like Christopher Nolan. David Fincher, who I'm like, loved everything he was making. I watched his, uh, he's French-Canadian, so then I watched his uh, film that was up for Best Foreign Film, now called Best International Film, but in 2011, uh, Incendie, mm -hmm. also incredible, heartbreaking, harrowing film. And when Arrival came out in 2016, or the trailer came out, I'm like, yeah. I'm seeing that. It's sci-fi. I'm seeing it's that. Denis. It is sci-fi. My favorite. I my favorite genre. It's Denis. Amy Adams, one of the best actresses working out there. Mm -hmm. I'm like, is it my birthday? What? <laughs> <laughs> but but no, it wasn't my birthday because it came out on November 11th, 2016, five days after a certain president was elected so you can kind of tell i because i'll that's how i remember that date because the whole country was just in shock at that mm. point and we're just like please let's just have anything to entertain us mm -hmm. and i was in a headspace where i'm like yeah i need, need to get need to check out for at least two hours went in and saw arrival and i'm like yeah it cemented it just cemented in my mind, Denis being the top, he he surpassed Christopher Nolan, who, who's mm. still who's still one of my favorites, number two. But Denis became my number one. Arrival became one of my favorite movies of that decade. It's funny to talk about that decade being now twenty twenty, but that decade, Arrival also became one of my favorite movies of all time. Became obsessed with it, and I was first in line to see. Blade Runner 2049, and that was also the that movie. Was our first date. Our first date. Yep. Yeah. Blade Runner 2049, probably Denise's weakest movie. But by saying it's his weakest movie, that's like saying it's you know the worst piece of gold. <laughs> you know, it's the, the worst Eminem in the bag. Yeah, worst Eminem. <laughs> it's they're all uh, you know that's meaningless. Saying it's the weakest Denise movie, it's still incredible. So that's my relationship with Arrival. I've been obsessed with it ever since. I couldn't wait to show it to you. And this is a situation where Danny actually read the short story also before yeah, me. Yeah, I did some reading. Can you he believe did that, some folks? Reading. Well, it is a 40-page novella mm -hmm. <laughs> short story. Uh, but yet, Danny read it before me. The text me. is small. The text is small. Uh, sure. 
<laughs> yeah, sure. sure, guy. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, but yeah, well, let's get into some of the differences between the Dig short the story and the movie. Laura, would you like to start us off? I'll kick us off. So right off the bat, it's very different. Mm-hmm. First of all, POV, slightly different. I mean, the movie takes place from Amy Adams, Louise's perspective, but mm. this is literally narrated by her. And by it's, her. And it's like a uh, story that she's kind of she's like telling to her daughter, but it's also could be like a diary entry or something like that. Right. And also right off the bat, the title is different, which is sort of interesting. I personally think Arrival is really powerful because it not only signals the arrival of the aliens, but it also, in the story, there's a line that says it's talking, Arrival, the word talks about her daughter's birth. So I think that's a little bit deeper. Right, and test audiences thought the same. This is a fun fact. Their working title for this film was Story of Your Life, and Paramount held a bunch of test screenings and audiences were like yeah maybe change the the title it's a little boring to be honest on the page i think it's just a little bit run of the mill i don't think it stands out and i think arrival has sort of a punch and it has a deeper significance obviously especially after you read it Mm -hmm. or after you watch it so i think it was a really good move to change the title and I think it's a really good move for the movie not to be completely told from the point of view of Louise because it immerses you more into sort of her confusion about what's happening Mm -hmm. throughout the story's trajectory. And something that I really want to point out, again, even before I started the second paragraph, I wrote Brave on the top of this (laughs) short story because like we talked about earlier, it's about linguistics and a way that this story is so interesting is how sort of meta it is because it foreshadows the fact that you're not really looking back at a memory mm-hmm. through the tense. Yeah. And <laughs> I know that's a little bit technical, but having seen the movie, I already knew that she wasn't experiencing just a memory. I already knew that she was going to sort of be experiencing the future as her present and her past. And so I started noticing the tense was really hard to pin down. And had I read the story first, I would have been really confused. But having seen the book, having seen the movie first, I was able to understand that that was a signal. It was a literary choice that is, again, really brave, but really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. So I think that, again, the movie is able to communicate that she doesn't know. She's right where you are Mm -hmm. in the beginning of the movie. In the story, she already knows that all of this is happening. So I think that takes away a level of confusion that maybe the movie could have sort of piled on to viewers really quickly. And so I like that choice. I think it's sort of, there is so much to figure out through the course of the movie slash Mm -hmm. the story. I think it was really smart to sort of remove that in the beginning and let us just immerse ourselves 
in her experience chronologically, however that, (laughs) you know, unfolds, if you could say chronologically. Well, yeah, I mean, the movie starts out with what we think, we're so conditioned to think that seeing a montage Mm -hmm. like that, that it's happened in the past. Right. Because we see these sequence of events, and then we start with Louise walking into her classroom Mm -hmm. when the aliens come down, and we're so conditioned to see stuff before and after that we think that all came before leading to the big twist of the movie that completely blindsided See, us and that's so smart because yeah. our way of thinking breaks exactly the way hers breaks because like you said the movie begins with what we think is maybe a flashback or you know with the the baby and stuff like her saying her on the porch and looking out at her you know, lake or whatever. So because we've been conditioned to recognize the structure of a story, we start sort of trying to put things together and catch up with, you know, her life chronology. But then as she's starting to realize that that's her daughter and that's her future, the way that we start understanding our chronology sort of becomes the way that she's seeing it too. Right. Man, it's just really smart. It's so interesting that, like, he's the author, Ted Chang, is able to make you understand that learning this alien language changes the way you think, because that is how foreign languages work, you know? And she talks about dreaming, and she talks about how you think in a different language, but this literally changes you to the point where you can see the future. That is such an interesting concept. Yeah, so and smart we start, and interesting. it is, and we start the story with her, I guess, in in point in time where she has already learned mm-hmm. how to think like the heptapods, where she sees all time simultaneously. Right. Yeah, and then I think, I mean, this is sort of a, this is a similarity, but when she realizes that she's, I think there there are two scenes where she realizes that she's getting information from the future mm-hmm. for her present. The first one is when she comes up with zero sum game. Yeah, the non zero sum game, which is me. written, which is ripped like straight from the right. short story into the movie. Right. So that is the first moment where I think she sort of realizes that maybe it's not a memory, or mm-hmm. uh, but of course she she at first perceives these quote-unquote memories that we know are memories as dreams and then that's the moment when she realizes wait a second (laughs) i think i got that bit of information from my present Mm -hmm. for the future and then the second time obviously that she realizes oh i can utilize what i'm learning in these flash forwards is when the call with the chinese general yeah chang yeah colonel chang Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is not in the sh- not in the story. Yeah, so that's let's move the, on to the next right. big change where th- there is no uh, conflict in the. There really short is no conflict. Yeah, story. Right. So in the short story, a hundred and twelve looking glasses are placed around the world, and there's a lot less focus on Louise as the single American linguist expert. Mm-hmm. Or linguistic experts. So she's important in the story, but she's working, she's sort of networking with a lot of other scientists and linguists. 
And I like the the choice of the movie to sort of make her a crux <laughs> of the story and to have less spaceships because in the or looking glasses, which obviously doesn't happen in the movie, but to have only twelve, I think, you know, keeps it focused and Well, yeah, it's a lot cooler too. Screenwriter Mayor Kaiser said that they're essentially Skyping with the aliens in the short yeah. story. They're like looking at screens. The looking glasses are not ships. The ships are in the orbit. And then in this, then he's very open about this, Eric Heiser, in interviews saying, he talked to Ted, he's like, look, for the movie, it's going to be a lot cooler if they're actually, mm -hmm. if the ships come down. And Ted Chang was like, yeah, that's, it. Ted Chang was totally on board with that change. Mm -hmm. uh, it works for them, <laughs> for the ships to come down. It really works better to having the, I don't know what the budget was like, but this movie makes you feel the enormity behind the glass by having all of that obscure cloud stuff going on. Mm -hmm. But in the story, it's literally, there's literally a chair and a screen that mm -hmm. the aliens are described pretty much exactly the same as you see them in the movie. They're mm -hmm. called heptapods and they're black sort of hand, like, hand -like you know, like hand-like yeah. uh, black octopi with seven legs. Mm -hmm. So, but... To me, for in the story, it really broke that sense of awe mm -hmm. by having it literally be sort of a presentation conference room where the heptapods are just sort of using expo markers to write their little hieroglyphics, you know, on a on a whiteboard. Right. That to me seemed a little bit. And silly. I wager that was the point, right? That Ted was doing. He was taking the awe away mm -hmm. from it and trying to say, look, it's an allegory for, sure. <laughs> for humans. Like, look, it's not, it's, there is nothing special. In fact, the ending of the short story is very... Banal. Banal, not anticlimactic. Well, yes, it I is, would say that yeah. because they, they just leave and you never find out what they were on Earth for. They, they didn't show any desire to ask questions. They never answered um, their purpose as to why they were they're just there and they never progressed past a certain point of physics or but I think so my interpretation I think Ted Chang was subtly hinting at that they their gift was the understanding of the language like it is in sure. the movie because in the short story Louise is talking to Weber by saying that they want to the aliens want to conduct this gift giving ceremony mm -hmm. Yeah. And Weber's confused. Like, he's like, can we ask about gifts? Like, do we, our gifts need to be commensurate in value? Mm -hmm. What What do they even value? And Louise is, is trying to say, it's like, well, they don't, we don't even know their concept of gifts or value. We don't even know if we could have gotten the gift already. And I think they had. Right, by swapping languages or swapping information and just being able to peacefully converse. Right. Yeah. Weber was thinking, well, he was thinking, you know, ca cause and effect. Right. He was thinking, we're going to give him a gift and they're going to give us a gift. But the aliens all thinking yes. simultaneously at once, to them, they had already given the, the humans the gift and were not necessarily wanting anything back because they didn't. They didn't understand that concept. Well, we didn't know if we. Mm -hmm. They didn't know if they understood that concept. So to them, just leaving like that out of the blue felt appropriate because it's like it didn't matter when they gave humans the gift because all time happens at once. 
yeah. for them, mm-hmm. and, which is just so cool to think about yeah, that. It's I, like you, yeah. you could, they could theoretically give human touchdown on Earth at, at any time, and it would be the same to them, which is just so cool to think about. But yeah, I definitely think, obviously, for a movie... It's much cooler for a ship to come down and for them to interact with aliens there than to just be have these looking glass screens be there. Yeah, that, that was a great decision. The big change that I like about the movie and kind of want to discuss is Louise's choice at the end and what that means for the universe. So in, in the short story, it's deemed that the universe is deterministic, meaning that she couldn't save her daughter even if she wanted to. Um, like, she was always going to die. That's what knowing the future is, is not being able to change it, because they talk about that, that book, of, book ages, of ages, how yeah. it's like a logical fallacy. So if you know the future, you can make a decision to change the future. But if you change the future that means that you don't know what's coming next, so you can't know the future. Well, so to back up, so the Book of Ages, as a rule, can never be incorrect. Right. So if you know the future and you decide, well, I want to change it, that isn't necessarily possible because whatever the book says Mm -hmm. will happen. And so, however, it's like... And even in the short story, it's mm-hmm. described as being like the fates in Greek mythology. As try as you might to not fulfill your fate, you will eventually yeah. fulfill your fate. <laughs> yeah, which kind of makes the short story a little more depressing by saying that that's basically saying since the universe is deterministic, that means that humans, that beings don't have free will. Whereas in the movie, Louise has free will by making the choice to have her daughter anyways. And in her, in the movie, the, her daughter dies from a disease. So it, I like that change because if her daughter died... So we didn't... Yeah, we didn't talk about how in the short story, her daughter actually dies in a rock climbing accident. Right. In the movie, her daughter dies much young, at a much younger age in her teens from a disease. So that's ultimately why screenwriter Eric Heiserer changed her daughter's death uh, to be from a disease instead of a rock climbing accident because if you do have free will, then Louise would have just said, hey, don't go rock climbing that day. Whereas in this case, it's an unstoppable disease, which makes her choice uh, much more meaningful. I think, you know, some people I've discussed this movie with are like, how could you have a child after knowing that that child's going to die? It's like, well, by not having the child also means that she's killing that child because she's killing that love that that she already knows. Since she lives in the future with her thoughts simultaneously. simultaneously, she already knows her daughter. It's not a case of stopping of not having her daughter to not go through this tragedy. She's already gone through it. I completely agree. That is the, I think that is the most powerful change from the story to the movie because even the last line, which I think is really funny because I think the last line, the first time I watched it was the part that just devastated me Mm -hmm. because in the beginning she foreshadows that, you know, do you want to make a baby question 
And of course, when it's asked in the end, you realize the journey that she had to go through to say yes. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because the second time we watched this, we watched it with my family and my brother, maybe he wasn't sold (laughs) fully on the movie, but he got up and he said, wow, what a line to end a movie with. Do you want to make a baby? And I sort of from a deeply emotional, visceral place in my body was like, that is the titular line in the entire movie. How could you not understand that this was the choice the whole movie was leading up to? I got a little hysterical because it is her, the the entire movie is her coming to terms with exactly that that choice Mm -hmm. that's not necessarily available to her in the short story which i think makes her a little bit of a dead end character i think by the end of the story it's kind of like well she realized that by understanding her knowledge of the future that was her path and that Mm -hmm. is it and she fulfilled that path and you know you can go back and forth all you want about whether or not she could have told her daughter not to go on that you know, rock climbing trip, eventually her daughter would have died. And that's that. And I tend to, again, think that sort of gives her a bit of a dead end, her character a bit of a dead end. With this, like Danny talked about, it's, she's making this absolutely gut-wrenching decision, but she wanted those experiences. And she talks about that too. Mm -hmm. Throughout the movie, she talks about you know, she tells her daughter, you can do anything. She talks about, I think one time she's approaching the pod and she talks about not wanting to miss out on, you know, sort of the hugeness of love and the the depth of her feeling for her daughter and her family. And, you know, another thing that's really interesting about that too, is that the father, Jeremy Renner's character in both the story and the movie leaves because he finds out that she's made the decision already knowing that the daughter's going to die. And in the story, I can relate to that dad. (laughs) You know what I mean? As in the story, I can sort of look at him and put myself in his shoes and say, yeah, if I knew that I'd be kind of pissed because I would, I would have at least tried to do as much as I possibly could to make her not die. Even if I knew it was fate, how could you, keep yourself back from preventing that death Mm -hmm. in the show. It's like he, he is a physicist and he clearly never grasped the depth of the language that she could finally project herself into the future and fully understand the way that the heptapods were communicating. And so he, as a character is limited by his understanding and couldn't go to the depth of her faith in the process and he ended up not being able to handle it, and mm-hmm. he left. So I think it gives her more of a of a gravity, mm-hmm. and him this lack of gravity, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. But yeah, I just think that makes a lot more sense for those characters. Sure. Yeah. And what do you think of the final act of the movie where she has that phone call with Chang? Do you like that addition to the story, whereas the the short story didn't have? any conflict i do yeah i think the whole conflict about you know getting humans to work together is a little bit cheesy but on the whole too it's really interesting when i was taking notes for the podcast 
I'm just going to list a few things that I noticed because we're in this pandemic. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to draw attention to the news casting that they turn on at the beginning of the movie and sort of throughout. So they use the word lockdown a lot. Hello. (laughs) We're recording this from quarantine. Uh, They talk about a state of emergency. They talk about air flight, air travel being suspended. They talk about panic buying, which Mm -hmm. we all experienced. We still currently can't find eggs (laughs) at our local supermarket for the third week in a row. Uh, They talk about the about america's possibly you know dipping into a financial crisis you have the imagery of the hazmat suits before they know that the oxygen is clean and there's no bacteria in the air and you know i thought that was really interesting i think it sort of gives the movie a place in this time and a hope that you know maybe other countries can work together to overcome this pandemic and again even though it's a little bit cliche and a alien movie you know to have no battle royale against all the countries i think it is a really hopeful message and especially in this time where we're all sort of trying to overcome this covid19 pandemic um so and then with the phone call i think it goes back to the humanity sort of maybe um ted chang's message of go back to humanity and go back to basic communication and go back to working together to try to overcome things I think that little short phone call is exactly sort of represents what he wanted to say it's so cool that scene is so I remember watching that and just being like that's how is anything else going to be as cool as that in feeding having the future feed information to the past something as momentous as that of louise in the past not yet knowing colonel chang's wife's dying words mm-hmm. and of in the future colonel chang not knowing how she came to know it yeah. but of realizing that the universal language that has been established makes you able to see all time simultaneously, he came to the understanding, even though he didn't know the language, of understanding that he can feed this information to someone who does know the language to go essentially time travel, have that information time travel. It's just the coolest thing. It's so great. And Johan Johansson's score during that scene is incredible. It's very... It's very understated. You know, there are a couple booms here and there. but Very, very like, like Shutter Island. Yes. Very similar. And it's just, it all culminates to this one thing because th- that's, I agree. The message that humanity works best when humanity works together right. is inherently cheesy. However, how it's handled in the movie makes it very yeah. impactful and important. It's, you know, it's key to to understanding the movie that you understand that every conflict that happens is human born. Sure. That the aliens show... Do nothing. <laughs> they show no sign of aggression at all. In fact, they save Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner when the other military guys put the bomb in the... Right. Yeah, yeah. Every conflict um, that Louise and Ian encounter... You know, they're rooted in human behaviors, like impatience, like with mm-hmm. Colonel Weber saying, oh, you're going to teach him 
how to write and speak at the same time that's just going to waste time. He's always concerned about time and about right. reporting to his higher ups of like how are we dealing with this situation, what which is which it? is ironic because yeah. time is circular in in the movie, um, and then. Uh, more conflict arrives from fear from the soldiers right. right they're fearing that the army is not doing enough and that the aliens are going to retaliate and show they're showing aggression when clearly they're not doing anything and then it, also the conflict comes from distrust with everyone going radio silent or with uh agent holleran played by uh michael oh. Uh, Stuhlberg. Yes, shout out to him because let me tell you, he's one of my favorite actors out there right now. He's yeah, also Stuhlberg, the father sorry. in Call Me By, by Your, your name. name. There's another cross reference. Yeah, but with him um, saying that you know maybe the, all the aliens want us to fight among ourselves until one faction prevails, and Luis says there's no evidence of that, and he responds, of course there is. Just grab a history book. There's all this evidence of past cultures doing this to other smaller factions colonies, colonies. Of their, of theirs, yeah. um and yeah it's all the whole conflict stems from humans and that was essentially the point that the aliens had landing they landed in these random spots around the world just for the sole purpose of uniting the world mm -hmm. and yeah it, uh, of course it is a very cheesy message we've heard a thousand times that's what the hippies were saying back in the 60s that everyone should join together but this is the way to do it and honestly who wouldn't pay to see that right now yeah <laughs> like we could use a little extraterrestrial help right now yeah i, I know <laughs> i would like to have to find but it, it, it really all comes down to communication mm -hmm. and that's what louise has written was the first sentence in her book at. has arrived at <laughs> saying that language is the foundation of civilization it is the glue that holds a people together that's the first weapon drawn in a conflict which is true because the lack of communication say if you meet another uh, species another uh, culture and they don't say anything and they just go right to attacking well their lack of communication is a form of communication i mm -hmm. think louise is right here by saying that it, it's the foundation because without it civilizations can crumble exactly how it almost crumbled on earth when everyone decided to go radio silent mm -hmm. and a certain portion of the globe decided to attack the aliens for no reasoning whatsoever, simply out of fear. Mm -hmm. And it was that la lack of communication that ultimately almost ended to world destruction. But what brought them back? You guessed it, communication. communication. <laughs> A literal phone call saved the right. world. Literal one-to-one uh, -one communication. So I thought that was just so yeah, profound. It really is. And I think one of the things that stands out in this movie, too, is just how emotional it is. Mm -hmm. I think... Oh, yeah the the lighting does that i'm going to talk a lot about the things that you know more technically than me so jump in if you feel like you have something to add but <clears throat> the lighting is so dramatic god that opening scene with the blues when she's looking out mm -hmm. over the lake out of her house incredible the bright light the white light when she's interacting with the aliens the gosh just so anyway, <laughs> I'm just sort of still gushing, gushing. Yeah, but yeah, the lighting, the sound, the score, yeah. I it's just so it's so emotional, and I you know obviously we're not parents yet, 
I have something to tell you. What? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) We're not parents yet, but I can imagine not only having to make the decision to have a child, but also have a child that you know has an expiration date. Mm -hmm. It's a very clinical way of saying it, but it puts people who maybe aren't in that same situation right there into the depth of that kind of contemplation, which is just incredible. No, I completely agree. Going back to what you're saying about the lighting and the shots, the the cinematographer is Bradford Young. He was nominated for an Oscar for this movie. He was the first African American to be nominated uh, for best cinematography in 2016. Yeah. Oh well, in 2017 oh, was well, when the okay. awards right. were. Um, yeah. So a year, wow. even a year later. Uh, yeah. But Bradford Young. I mean, the cinematography of this movie is so incredible, and it's very. A lot of it takes place in low light, like mm. at night or overcast days or kind of moonlit dusk days it's incredible what they're able to do here the cinematography in all of Denis Villeneuve's films is incredible he very frequently works with Roger Deakins there I mentioned his name again I said I yeah every episode (laughs) I mentioned Roger Deakins he works with him a lot he worked with him in uh, Sicario and Blade Runner Blade Runner 2049 and Prisoners but yeah the cinematography was nominated. This movie also garnered uh, seven other nominations. So Best Directing for Denis, Best Adapted Screenplay for Eric Heiser, Best Achievement in Film Editing with Joe Walker, Best Achievement in Sound Mixing, Best Achievement in Production Design, and then it only won one of those. It won Best Achievement in Sound Editing for uh, Sylvian Bellamare. Now, I totally agree. So the difference between sound editing and sound mixing, sound editing is all the sounds that um, you can't replicate in real life, all the sounds that are edited in post, so mm-hmm. all the, the aliens or the soundtrack. The, and then sound mixing, when you hear a mix, think the entire mix of the movie. So that's all the dialogue recorded on set and then everything that comes together. So think, when, you think, when you think sound editing, think sound editing effects. And it's crazy. I s- remember back in 2016, after seeing this movie... I went to a bar with my friend who had also seen it. We didn't see it together. But he said, this seems like a movie that's going to get a bunch of nominations, but it's only going to win, like, sound editing. And, oh, wow. and that is exactly what happened. In fact, that, that year, the Oscar pool, I had predicted that Arrival was going to win sound editing just from that conversation. It was a big upset. It did end up win, winning. And because I got that category right, I ended up winning the whole pool. So... Yeah, that's a little fu- fun <laughs> story cool. about that. Yeah, who did you go to the bar with? Uh, Trevor McGinnis. Oh, Never met him. I don't think I've met him. Yeah, but some more kind of fun facts about the movie. Its budget was $47 million, which for a movie of this scale, a, a sci-fi movie, that's nothing. That's It is incredible how this movie was made for that yeah. little amount and ended up grossing $203 million domestic. So, so it was pretty popular. Oh, it, it was yeah. a hit. And it needs to be stated that this was not a studio film. It was distributed by Paramount, but that that doesn't mean the same thing by saying it is a a studio film. It was actually uh, funded by two different production studios, Lava Bear Films and 21 Laps Entertainment, distributed by Paramount. But this very much is kind of an art house film in its core, funded by these two smaller production companies, 
and Paramount just so happened to pick it up. Um, it probably was eventually going to get picked up by one studio, given the caliber of its director and cast. Mm-hmm. Amy Adams, incredible, understated performance. Oh it's God. so It was so refreshing to see um, a character, specifically a woman character, just be very introverted and you know, quiet and clearly the smartest person in the room. It also, she was one of the only one of two women in the entire film, basically. It was so cool to see just a character that was just, just so, you know, quiet and, and and spoke when it, when it mattered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Obviously I'm a huge fan of female leads and I think I would have a different relationship with this movie if she had been a male character because I really find her inspiring. She's a she's a linguistics professor and I would love that job even though we would have to live in the middle of nowhere <laughs> because I wouldn't be making any money. But no, it is it's really inspiring and like you said, the way that she finds her voice at the right times and pushes back. And I don't think there's a single time where she lets herself be pushed down by Colonel Weber's impatience or mm-hmm. Holleran's pushing for violence or action. There's literally never a point where she questions who she is and why she's making the right decisions for her and what she thinks is the right decision for other people. Right, and she has an answer for everything, and it's the right answer. Yeah, oh my god, she's it, so smart. It's not It's not like she's combative at all. She's not a contrarian. She's just fighting for what she knows is kind of the right way to do things of when you're trying to establish a communication with a, with an alien uh, force. And she's clearly thought so far ahead of these people, and she's clearly such an expert that they have to default to her knowledge because she continuously proves that she is the right person to be making these decisions. And they eventually follow her, which I love. Yeah, but despite Amy Adams' incredible performance, one of the best of the decade, she was not nominated for an Oscar. Unbelievable. An incredibly awful snub on the Academy's part. But yeah, at least... least my boy Denis was nominated in his direction. I mean, is incredible. Like I said it before, it's patient. The yeah. movie takes its time. The first half of this movie is just them going to the spaceship and meeting the aliens for the first time. Denis is also great. He's such an actor's director, mm-hmm. meaning everyone in the cast delivers incredible f- performances. Okay. I'm, I mean like secondary people, like people who have one line. Or, like, newscasters. Well, for example, that young military guy really feels like he has a full, fleshed-out character. Right. The guy who gets really scared and ends up sort of planting the bomb and sort of has that conversation over the phone about, yeah, we're being careful, you know, with his girlfriend or whatever at home. He feels like a full character, even though he's probably in it for five minutes. Right. And I think it would have been easy to make that subplot much longer to really like go into that but to but to have two scenes of him you know listening to a news report of a alex jones uh, of an alex jones equivalent character talking about how they should 
uh, attack the aliens, and then of him talking to his wife, saying that his wife's freaking out, saying that the aliens might kill, like attack us. It's, yeah, she's she's reiterating misinformation that she's heard. Right. It, it's just two scenes, and that's all you need. That's, I agree. That's all you need to if get. If those had been longer, they would have been obnoxious, and it right. would have been a little bit on the nose, like, okay, I get it, you know. But yeah, it's the economy of information that Denis has a hold of, where. He just shows you that you get what's going on when the military soldiers make that decision to plant the bomb. You get it. You get the conflict. And yeah, it's done. They move on and the movie keeps on moving. Like I said, it is both slow, but also very economic with its pacing at the same time. And I want to go back to something that you said earlier, too, about how he really told those snippets of what you first think are, fl are flashbacks and then you realize are her eventual future. I think that's done better in the movie. And it goes, a, it goes back to what we talked a, bit, a little bit about, about changing the point of view and changing the fact that it's not fully narrated but in her head. Mm -hmm. I don't think that Ted Chang does that as deftly in the story. I think the way that he tried to communicate that was he he forced it a little bit too much by trying to pull the wool over your eyes and say this is a memory. Mm -hmm. I I think it was just a little bit overdone be, and by trying to again like force you to see this is a memory, this is a dream, this is not really the future. She's not really even I think there's a line where she says like I'm not seeing the future or something, which I think was a little bit of a red herring. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of marked it as such. And I think in this movie, by putting you along with her journey and starting to see those landmark moments of her getting information from the future or starting to realize, starting to see her in those storylines or starting to see Ian in those storylines and starting to put the pieces together of, oh, this isn't just a dream. This is something that is my future. I think that, yeah, he directed the shit out of that storyline. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, and he's great at getting these little moments that are just so impactful. Little moments of nothing. And when I say that, I mean the nothing is what makes it impactful. Specifically, there's a scene in the very beginning when Louise is in her classroom and there's barely any students there. And someone says... Professor, can you turn on the television? And you turn it on, and it's you don't see what they're looking at. You just see their reactions. And it's not them freaking out. It's yeah. not them screaming or saying, like, oh, my God, or talking. Everyone is just staring in silence, wide-eyed, and you're, they're letting the, the news report play of the aliens touching down. It's one of the most scary kind of emo emotional things. Well, you're, you're kind of watching what we're going through currently. Yeah. You're watching other people react to it in a very real human way. Right. And I think it would be so easy to have people like scream and freak out, be like, oh my God, get those like crazy shots. But no, just to have them stand there silently is haunting and effective. And the movie's filled with those moments and, and these lines that just knock you on your ass and oh, you're yeah. like oh my goodness that's incredible that's incredible stuff the script was initially much longer but they uh condensed 
the middle portion of it, that's when Ian has that monologue mm-hmm. or that where they had that montage where he's delivering exposition. Yes, it's it's a big exposition dump, but it works because yeah. what they're showing is so cool and the mu- the soundtrack is uh, so engaging. Mm-hmm. Joe Walker had total control of this movie. His editing work was great. I think he should have won for best editing. Well, I think all the categories is nominated for it should have won for it, but anyways that's another story but yeah incredible movie and i i never actually said this i liked the short story a lot too i think it's very different mm-hmm. um but it's a great companion piece with this movie but yeah th- this is a great example of elevating the material definitely go see this movie four out of yeah. four stars if that wasn't clear <laughs> if that yeah <laughs> uh, no yeah i agree i think certainly watch the movie get ready for a good cry mm-hmm. and yeah i would i would half recommend the story i think like danny said if you want a little bit more to go along with the story then read it i think it's enjoyable uh but you get everything i think that the story wants to give to you if you just watch the, sure. the movie so is that it? Yeah. Man, I've wanted to talk about that for so long. Two years. <laughs> yeah. Well, we finally arrived at the date. Um, and the ending of the podcast. Oh, wow. But I always <laughs> knew this would be the ending. Or is it the beginning? I don't believe that endings are beginnings anymore. Well, you know, and speaking of that, too, you know, we talked about Shutter Island and how as soon as you end the story, you want to jump right back in to try to catch all the details that you missed the first time because you didn't know the twist. Same thing with this freaking movie. Yeah. Because, I mean, this was the this was only the second time that I watched it uh, last night, and it just really... There's so much depth that you have to carry through the movie as you realize that this is, you know, Louise's journey of the decision to have her baby. So, oh boy, watch this and then watch it again. (laughs) Yeah. And then watch it a third time. And then watch it a third time. Get the DVD. There's a, or get the the Blu-ray. There's a bunch of great special features on there. I'm, I'm actually going to watch them probably again right now just because I just want to. Well, I'm gonna go to bed. <laughs> yeah, you're you're. Sl- Laura gets sleepy after downing uh, Marg. Uh, 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 I did. What? You're gonna deny it? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have to get along to my next book that we're my next uh, right. novel that we're reading for. Yeah. Next episode. This pod. Don't spoil it. I'm not gonna spoil it. All right. Well, that was fun. Love this movie. It's such a perfect little sci-fi epic meditative. Emotional, gut wrenching, but yeah, it's time to sign off. So we don't have a sign off yet. So I can say just uh, follow me on Letterboxd. Danny G Reviews is my Letterboxd name. Lorby, anything? Text me if you have a good book suggestion. Text me <laughs> at three one. But I'm not gonna give you oh. my cell phone number. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be close to me inner circle which consists of two friends great well that's all the people who (laughs) listen to us right now hopefully one day we'll have a lesion of followers of course who have your number but as of right now don't give out my number (laughs) but as of right now 
thank you to the two people uh, listening, Mom and Dad. Dr. Florian and, and uh, Allison. Okay, so four people. We're up to four. But this has been Film is Lit, and we are signing off. By okay. saying we're signing off, because we don't have a sign up yet. We're new to this. Bye. Bye.